You're listening to a Podglomerate original. Welcome back to Missing Pages. I'm your host, Beth Ann Patrick. This is the podcast where we examine some of the most surprising, industry-shaking controversies in the literary world and try to make sense of them. This is a bonus episode of our series about ghostwriting. In this episode, you'll hear from a ghostwriting agent and a successful ghostwriter. We've been talking a lot about ghostwriting because ghosting, that's the industry term, is big business. Nonfiction ghostwriting, I think, is a, a huge industry. I mean, it's a major, major part of the book publishing industry. And I suspect that quite often, at least 60% of all books on the nonfiction bestseller list are probably ghosted. That's Madeline Morell. She's known as a literary matchmaker and she's fabulous. I love talking with her. I don't think anyone knows the business of ghosting better than Morell. She's been in the business for more than 40 years. And she says on her website, she's always looking for new clients who have books to be written in order to maintain her Prada habit. Well, I'm the only agent, I think, who who does nothing but represent ghostwriters to the book publishers. And I work strictly within the book world. Tell us a little bit about that role and how you came to represent ghostwriters exclusively. Well, for many years as an agent, I packaged books. And then in the early aughts, I recognized that publishing was changing and was becoming more and more like Hollywood, where it was all about the platformed author. And these platformed authors were clearly going to need writers. And I never considered myself to be a particularly good agent, and I hated selling. But I loved giving good phone, as I say. And so I decided I would hang out my shingle or rehang it up and just represent writers to agents and publishers who'd signed up what we call platformed authors and who needed somebody to write their books for them. And what changed in publishing? How did the importance of a platformed author start to grow? I think some of it has to do with the fact that so many formerly independent publishing houses were acquired by publicly uh, quoted companies who were really more interested in the bottom line than anything else. I think that had a tremendous effect on types of books that publishers bought. They wanted to buy brand name. It's almost product, actually, and attach writers to these books and pay quite good monies often far too much for these books and and sort of go the way of Hollywood. You know, everybody had to have marquee quality to them. The ghostwriters whom I represent, they all have just phenomenal, phenomenal CVs and have done major, major books. I mean, since I've been doing this, I've been behind 60 New York Times bestsellers and the writers are getting better and better. So what makes a good ghostwriter, a good collaborator, in effect? When people ask me that, I always say two things, high pain threshold and no ego. We've met a few of these successful ghosts who have what it takes this season, but there's one who's worth hearing from again, Andrew Crofts, the best-selling ghostwriter who's based in England and also has a lovely accent like Morel. He's a successful writer who's authored and ghostwritten a number of books. 
I was a freelance writer right from the beginning, right from the age of 17. I was doing any sort of writing I could get, some of which was public relations writing and things. So I was getting in the, I had the idea that you could write in other people's voices. Uh, and then I was doing an interview for um, a magazine called The Director, which is the business magazine, as it sounds, for the Institute's directors. And I was interviewing a business guru. And towards the end of the interview, um, he, or after the interview, he said, listen, I've been commissioned to do some books by a publisher, and I just haven't got time. He said, so if you were to come to my office and look through my files and come to my talks or whatever, and I give you the material, will you go and write the books? And I'll get the glory and you can have the money. And uh, I was insulted for about two seconds. And then I thought, actually, actually, that's not such a bad deal. Because the best bits about writing are finding out stories and writing them and telling stories. The worst bits about writing are trying to find a publisher, trying to get paid, trying to keep your head above water. And all that disappears with ghostwriting because he already had a publisher. He could afford to pay a fee. And he also had all the information in one place. One of the big problems, particularly with nonfiction, is you have to go and research for months or years. Um, and that makes the whole thing uncost effective. Because if you're going to get $20,000 or £20,000 for a book, if it takes you six months or a year to research it, and you then another three, six months to write it, it's not very conducive to earning a living. But if you, he can just give you, everyone can, someone can give you the material within a couple of days or a week, you can then go off and write the book immediately. You don't have to do any other research. It's, it's all there. So I thought, well, if he, if there must be other people who need this service. Because in those days, this was about 30 years ago, nobody ever mentioned ghostwriters. I, I just didn't, it wasn't a term anybody ever mentioned. Or It was all terribly secretive. You were always sworn to absolute secrecy. Uh, nobody ever said they were a ghostwriter. Every writer would do it if they were hard up and they were asked by a publisher, but nobody ever admitted it. So I thought, well, why don't I just go looking for ghosting work? So I took a, um, a small ad, uh, like a classified ad in the Bookseller magazine, which is our version of Publishing Weekly. Just then ghostwriter for hire with my telephone number. And I ran that ad for 15 years, every week, 15 years. And for most of that time, I was the only person who actually, in, in England, there were one or two in America, but there was anyone in England who actually laid out their stall and said, I am a ghostwriter, any help I can give you. The idea of getting the bookseller was that um, I didn't want to talk to the whole general population at that stage because I was a bit nervous I'd get a million letters from totally hopeless cases. I wanted to get to everybody in the industry. I wanted anybody who wanted help with their writing would go to a publisher or a librarian, agent, somebody in the industry. And if I was the only telephone number they could find, then I had an advantage. In other words, if I can give you writing, if I can provide my services as a writer and you can give me money, that works. I don't have to have this entire thing about being a literary, you know, genius or character in the mix. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. I often equate it to other craftsmen. If you're a, a carpenter and you want to make one great big beautiful piece of furniture which you can sell for fifty thousand pounds and you're very and you're just starting out, well you've got to buy the materials, you've got to spend the time and you're gonna starve to death because you've then got to find somebody to, to pay an enormous amount of money for your beautiful piece of furniture. If, however, you go around your neighbourhood and you knock on doors and you say, I'm a carpenter, is there anything I can do for you? Would you like some new doors? Would you like a new kitchen? Um, I can knock you up a coffee table. And then in your spare time, because you're now earning a living, you can then build your great, beautiful piece. And it might take you a little bit longer, but you will at least be able to do it. And it won't, you won't have to sell it immediately. And you can, so you can, you know, so it, uh, 
taking that back to writing, if you're writing your great a novel, you can be doing that at the same time. This A, hones your skills and, and also gives you time because you've got money. The other thing about starting very young, as opposed to going through university, uh, is that you don't need so much money to live on, which is enormously important when you're a freelancer. You cannot go freelance if you've got a mortgage and two children in school. I mean, you can, obviously, but it's a million times more difficult. Why is there such secrecy around ghostwriting? In the old days, the publishers thought the reading public needed the, the idea that the people were writing the books themselves. I mean, they, it, it didn't occur to them that if you actually stopped and thought about it, nobody thinks that a film star has time to sit down and write 80,000 words or, or a footballer or, a you know, <laughs> if they could, they just don't have the time. Why would they bother? They thought that it took away from the, the experience, that, they, that you, you wouldn't believe you're inside that person's head, which is just awesome. Um, when I first started, I, it was we were still invisible. That I never, I mean, you sign. I sometimes you still sign NDAs because people want everyone to believe they wrote the book. But quite soon, um, the the sort of celebrity thing started, and at home with the Osbournes, and you know, kicked it off, didn't it? And the, and everybody suddenly reality and celebrity and all that. And I did um, a number of different winners of television competitions or or. Um, stars from soap operas and things. And I was doing one soap opera star, and she actually said. Um, well, I don't agree. I think you're, I don't want to not have your name on it because I don't want my friends to think I'm putting on airs and graces and pretending that I'm writing a book. Um, and she, so she demanded that the name be on the cover and the publishers realised that it made no difference to sales whatsoever. Um, and then people started to actually get angry. Readers became angry when they found out that their favourite celebrity was pretending they'd written it. In fact, they weren't. It was never the celebrity's fault. It was always the publishers who'd made the decision. Um, they felt cheated. But if they, if they were told right from the beginning, I'm getting help with the writing, everybody was fine with it. Uh, you, you, know, you wouldn't expect... You don't expect Barack Obama to be able to write all his own speeches. And you don't feel, you know, mortified to find out that there was a speechwriter who, you know, wrote something that may have got him into the White House or whatever. So... And now, and now it's become much more common. And in fact, once or twice recently, because I have been quite successful, um, one of the publishers have actually put my name as, in as large a print as the author, which is a bit embarrassing. I don't really like that. Coming up after the break, Crofts discusses his work process and what changes he anticipates with the introduction of AI. The real joy in it for you, Andrew, it sounds like, is in the doing. So do you have a staff? Do you have a research assistant, a, an admin, a, a bunch of, you know, interns? What do you know? How do you work? I just I do the whole thing myself. I think there, I think there are people who do. There are the, there are these sort of um, ghostwriting factories now where you get one person does the interview and then they pass it on and somebody and it costs Tuttons hate me and you get. 20,000 words on, you know, my my time in Vietnam. I sound I'm disparaging. I'm not. I'm, that's great. But it's not, they're not the sort of stories that I find really interesting. I want to do all the talk, listening myself. I want to ask all the questions myself. I want to be the reader. I want to ask all the same questions that, that the eventual reader is going to. I want to structure the story. Uh, so what will happen is I'll get, I, I will basically go in with a tape recorder. If I can, I'll, I'll say to them, give me two or three days total, nothing else. Because if you break it down into one or two hour interviews, like a journalist has to, 
you just each time you go back, you've got to start again with all the pleasantries. You know, how are you? And you can't remember what you talked about last time. And, and, and you know, one of you's late and the other one can't find their tape recorder. Or, you know, then it's just a mess. But if you could take them away, especially if you take them off to a hotel somewhere, and just for, for two or three days, you just sit down and you make them talk through the story chronologically fact or fiction you just make them tell you everything that's in their memory in their heads what they're thinking that way you a get their voice on tape you get the idea of what they would and wouldn't talk about what they do and don't say um, and you get the actual facts of the story hopefully the chronology of the whole thing i then go away with the tape and i would not exactly transcribe it but i will listen again and then i in the very best stories, when the story really flows and really holds my attention, I can type it, the first draft, without even going back to the tapes. I can just remember it. Then I'll check on the tapes that I've remembered everything and I've remembered it correctly um, and maybe put in actual bits of dialogue that they remembered that I've forgotten they told me or whatever, and then see what we've got. Find an, I will have found the narrative arc it, while talking to them and listening I mean, the chronology won't necessarily be the final manuscript because of word processing. It's now very easy to, to write it all chronologically because you can then swap it around later um, and, and take an, an exciting incident to chapter one and then flashback and all that. So, which used to be a real pain for word processing, but showing my age now. But, you know, when you had to do it with, with, with actual paper and arrows and cutting bits out and pasting them, I mean, dreadful, very... Yeah, traumatizing. Last question or two for me. What does the rise of artificial intelligence mean for ghostwriting? I know, for example, I'm, I teach creative writing and I can't ignore ChatGPT or GPT-4. And I wonder, how do we use this? Uh, will it help? Will it hurt? W what are your opinions? Well, I think, I mean, it's a threat to writers' incomes. But I, sus I suspect, for certainly in, in initially, the writing is going to be fairly pedestrian. It'll be like corporate brochures. Um, I mean, you know the difference between a, a corporate brochure and something that's written by a journalist, don't you? It's very obvious quickly that one is better, one is better than the other. Uh, and I think that that um, people just will get bored um, with AI writing. Um, but for stuff that's actual factual stuff, need-to-know stuff. I mean, newspapers may be in more trouble, perhaps, than books, because you buy a newspaper for actual facts written clearly and concisely, um, and AI might be able to do that more quickly than it can do a, a novel which um, or, or a non-fiction that delves into people's feelings. I don't feel threatened myself by AI, but I might if I was 20. You know, another 10, 20 years, it, it could be very sophisticated indeed. Missing Pages Season 25 might be all about AI, but I hope not. It's hard for me to imagine a technology that brings as much authenticity to the craft and business of publishing as people like Morell and Crofts. And isn't that what all great stories possess? Ghosting works because there's human connection involved. Relationships are fostered through agents like Morell, and the stories are channeled through talented writers like Crofts who develop a deep knowledge and bond with the author. So here's hoping that humanity continues to reign in this industry and that books, whether they're ghostwritten or not, continue to fly off the shelves.
In the next episode of Missing Pages, we're revisiting a story that captivated the literary world a couple of years ago, The Bad Art Friend. That's next time on Missing Pages. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original, produced, mixed, and mastered by Chris Boniello with additional production and editing by Jordan Aaron and Caitlin Boguki. This episode was produced by Claire Tai. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Vanessa Ullman, and Annabella Pena. Art by Tom Grillo. Produced and hosted by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Original music composed and performed by Hashem Asadullahi. Additional music provided by Epidemic Sound. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo, Matt Keeley, Madeline Morell, and Andrew Crofts. You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod, or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. 